listening to the TCM podcast. Hey there, I'm Scott McGee, your host for the TCM podcast. Uh, my guest today is a gentleman named Brian Trenchard Smith. Brian's a writer and a director of film. He is quite possibly the most admired and respected filmmakers in the world today that you've never heard of. Brian seems to carry on the tradition set forth by filmmakers like Val Luton, uh, William Whitney, Edgar G. Elmer, people, creators who did not really have the largest budgets to work with, but nevertheless, they made some undisputed classics in their respective genres without really becoming household names. And Brian is one of those one of those characters. He is a pillar of Australian cinema in the 1970s and 80s with films such as The Man from Hong Kong, uh, Turkey Shoot, uh, Dead End Drive-In, BMX Bandits, which that film happens to be Nicole Kidman's film debut, uh, a war film called The Siege of Firebase Gloria, and another film called Stunt Rock, which we've actually aired on TCM Underground in years past. And hopefully we'll be able to present more of Brian's work in the future here on TCM. Brian has been around the film industry the world over for decades. His absolute love of movies is infectious and palpable, and he's absolutely fascinating to listen to. So without further ado, here is Brian Trenchard-Smith. I'm just so tickled to, uh, to be able to connect with you. I mean, given, given the uh, circumstances that I, that I got your contact through Paul, your brother-in-law. Yes. Uh, I mean, it was, it, was just a, it was just a chance conversation at the, uh, that I had at the Plaza Classic Film Festival, which is in El Paso, Texas. And I was talking to the theater manager, who happened to be Paul Anger. And mm-hmm. Paul casually mentioned... Maybe you know my brother-in-law, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and I, I, my jaw hit the floor. I said, of course I know who that is. I can't, I can't believe that you're his brother-in-law. <laughs> well, yes, he's, uh, <laughs> I just remember that uh, the, uh, the day after I proposed to his sister, I went and visited him in the carpentry shop uh, at the University of Texas, El Paso, where he, he was, you know, working as he was part of the theater crew there and there he was stripped to the waist uh absolute six-pack abs rippling muscles a hammer in his hand and uh he he shook hands with me with one hand he had the hammer in the other hand and then he said you take care of my sister you hear <laughs> so, so, <laughs> that was my first acquaintance uh and uh, but we we have been you know great friends ever since and uh um, had had some adventures in El Paso, which is a great town. Which I, I'm sure that's a <laughs> that's a conversation for another time. Yes. I'm sure I'm sure El Paso lends itself to some really colorful stories. Uh, it does, it does. <laughs> it's uh, an extraordinary frontier town, um, and uh, you know I've I've always enjoyed my time there. And there's a you know the there's a, there is a, a loving family. Uh, there, though some of them have uh, have moved to other parts of Texas, um, and uh, but no, it's it's great. I'd love to make a film in El Paso because it has great visual potential. Some of which you can see in uh, you know the, the the films that Walter Hill made down there, Extreme Prejudice, uh, and uh, which I visited the set. Uh, Paul was a uh, a grip on Extreme Prejudice, and and I got to meet Walter Hill through him. Uh, so he he is a great 
facilitator of introductions. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so glad it worked this time as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, in, in preparing for this conversation with you, you know, I, I ran across several articles, several interviews. You're, you're very prolific on the web with, uh, with interviews, so I'm, I'm so happy that you sat down to talk to me. But, uh, you know, one of the more famous quotes that, uh, that you're attached to, not a quote from you, but it's really about you, comes from uh, a, someone named Quentin Tarantino. And, uh, I've heard of him. <laughs> I, yeah. I bet you have. He uh, introduced a screening of Kill Bill, which I believe was, uh, he, this was a, uh, the premiere in Australia. Of Kill Bill 1, yes, that's right, in Sydney. Where he uh, dedicated the screening to you. And he said, and I'll, I'll clean it up a little bit for our TCM audience. He said, if you don't like Brian Trinchard Smith, get the F out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He had, um, uh, he dedicated the film initially, he said, I'm going to dedicate this film to, uh, to you know, Kill Bill, <clears throat> Volume 1, to uh, a, a, a favorite Australian film of mine. And, of course, in the audience, there were a lot of uh, the, the glitterati, let's say, of the Australian uh, film industry at the time. And, you know, you could sense, apparently, I wasn't there, but you could sense a little rustle of anticipation. Uh, who is going to be mine? Is it going to be mine? <laughs> then he said, and so I'm dedicating it to Turkey Shoot, which, of course, is what was certainly, until uh, Quentin championed it, um, one of the most reviled films in uh, Australian cinema history. Um, and a universally damned and uh, excoriated by the critics. Uh, so there was an audible murmur of a of surprise and that is when he made that remark well if you don't like Brian Trenchard Smith you're not going to like this film and you can va te faire en couler to put it in French um, and uh, yeah well we hope a couple of them did uh, but uh, I think the audience went on to really enjoy Kill Bill Volume 1 and kind of get the the concept of the you know the you know uh, the sense of humor let's say that uh, i bought to turkey shoot and which a succeeding uh, generation discovered and quentin discovered it when he was working in a uh, uh, manhattan beach video uh, shop and you know, naturally got to see all the new vhs's that came in uh, in the mid 80s uh, and uh, uh, <clears throat> he certainly liked Turkey Shoot, uh, and uh, I met him at a premiere after party. He, 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 he was dating Mira Solvino at the time, and I just directed Paul Solvino, her father, in uh, a movie with Andrew McCarthy called Escape Clause, which I think you could find it on Netflix. It, it, it comes and goes anyway. Um, it's... Um, uh, yeah, let's say a, a thriller critical of the insurance industry. Um, anyway, he, uh, I was introduced to him and I said, you don't know me. I, and he said, yes, I do. You're Brian Trenchard-Smith. You made Turkey Shoot. Uh, and whoa, what, that, what were you thinking, man? What about that scene where they beat that girl to death on the parade ground? Oh, man, that was rad. And then he started to quote whole chunks of the dialogue verbatim. <laughs> and so it, it, it's, there's something about the sort of black-hearted laugh that Turkey Shoot is 
uh, you know, blended with, you know, a, a political message, let's say, a fairly, you know, unsubtle political message um, that seems to resonate with, you know, the generation after the one uh, that initially saw it. Though uh, I do know that it was, it, it is still a, a favorite film of uh, Australians in their 40s to 50s who saw it as teenagers uh, in Australia. And I had an example of that when I was shooting Sahara with uh, Jim Belushi. There are many Saharas, but mine was in 95. Uh, and I had 140 Royal Australian Air Force uh, men playing the Africa Corps in the sand hills, um, it, it, you know, north of New South Wales, doubling the Sahara Desert. And uh, we had a, a break to reset the explosives and give everybody water. And so I thought I'd have a little quiz here. Um, so they're all sitting around and I said, well, hands up uh, anybody who has seen, you know, BMX bandits. Um, this was 95 and quite a lot of hands went up uh, and then I said well uh, how about anyone who's seen Man from Hong Kong and a few more hands went up and then I said how many have seen Turkey Shoot? Virtually every hand went up. <laughs> uh, this, yeah, they, they, it was, it was their, their little cup of uh, slightly bitter tea. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, but Quentin has been, uh, you know, I, I, I see him from time to time uh, and he actually invited me to a, a private screening of the almost director's cut uh, of, um, well, the almost final cut, because he has final cut, um, of The Hateful Eight. And uh, it is great, I can tell you. That was the last time I saw him uh, <clears throat> a few weeks ago. Fantastic. Uh, but- That's fantastic. I mean, he's, yeah, he's, been, he's gone on record many times. Uh, about his love and enthusiasm for your films and you know indeed when you if you pay attention to uh, you know other things that he said about other filmmakers people like Sergio Leone and Robert Aldrich and Howard Hawks I mean these are these are filmmakers that he just absolutely adores and loves to the to the very core so you're you're in you're in very good company and you know it, it one other thing that I think you and your films have in common not only with Tarantino but also with the aforementioned filmmakers is you you have you display this innate sense of you're just having a a really good time making these films (laughs) yes yeah i I do i mean i think one should have a really good time making a film it's hard work um you sometimes wait a long time to get to you know you know play with those toys and uh uh and so you know i think one should you know, have as good a time as possible. Uh, I, the kind of films that I like to make, I mean, I, 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 I make films of every, every genre known to man and maybe a couple I've slightly invented. Uh, <laughs> I, I, well, let's say I do genre cocktails sometimes. I, I blend and gene splice a um, bit of this, a bit of that. I mean, when I made uh, Megiddo Omega Code 2, um, it was... Uh, the Omen meets Air Force One in the end of days, and they fight the Battle of the Bulge. Um, <laughs> and so I thought I would sort of stir in some elements from all those films uh, and uh, whisk 
vigorously and see what emerged. And uh, you know, a, you can judge for yourself. Uh, and I, I think it's a it's a fun film for both uh, uh, Pentecostal Christians and um, agnostics or atheists. <laughs> I've actually seen it with a mixed audience. Uh, it's interesting to see where both sides laugh, or, uh, and when both sides laugh at, uh, at the same time. Um, but no, I, I think it's important to have fun, and I like to uh, celebrate the uh, and mildly satirize the genre tropes of uh, you know standard genres, uh, and you know just I enjoy them, but I also enjoy having a wry smile at them at the same time. One one other thing about some of your films is that <clears throat> you don't have tremendous budgets to work with, and in in that regard. You, you kind of remind me a lot of Val Luton or perhaps Edgar G. Ulmer in that you were you were able to achieve a tremendous amount of of what you ended up with on screen with relatively very little. Is is that a fair assessment? I, I think it is a fair assessment. I, I've I've had to make you know I mean my second film, uh, well my second theatrically released film at least in Australia. Um, was made for one hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars, and uh, I mean, Man from Hong Kong was quite a big budget in its day, at five hundred thousand uh, dollars. But you know, re- recently, well, I suppose budgets are one thing. It, it, it's a question of how many shooting days you get. How how many camera hours can, do you have in which to generate the necessary images to tell the story? And let's say to put your own maybe slightly eccentric icing on the cake. Uh, and so uh, when someone says to me, well, we've only got a million dollars to make this film with, um, like BMX Bandits, for instance, uh, and I, I think I sent you a link to the, uh, the homage that has just gone viral. Right, the Red Bull, the Red Bull production. <coughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, and uh, so. Uh, BMX Nantes was made for a million Australian dollars, uh, but it, it, with clever uh, staffing, uh, we actually squeezed 40 days out of it. Um, and we also had to take care of the fact that the, you can only work uh, people under 16 so many hours a day. So it required a certain amount of clever scheduling, but we, we did it. So sometimes a budget sounds intimidating, but there may be ways of looking at it uh, and reorganizing the pieces inside the box to uh, to get greater value. So, but I, you know, I've had to make films in twelve days. Uh, pa- Paradise Virus uh, had to be prepped in six days uh, on on, the, on a Caribbean island that hadn't been shot on before for sixty years. Uh, shot in two six-day weeks and edited in a week. Um, mixed and on the air uh, three weeks later, um, primarily because the production company forgot the air date. <laughs> they had the order and then, well, for various reasons, they, they weren't able to actually get started until um, New Year's Eve and uh, uh, we were on the air on Valentine's Day night. Why anyone would want to put a film about a deadly contagious virus uh, on Valentine's Day is a mystery to me, but anyway, it was uh, the network ordered it. And so it was duly made. But to try and squeeze um, 
Yeah, out of about sort of uh, $800,000, I think, to try and squeeze a movie out of that on that scale uh, in that remote place was kind of difficult. But these are the challenges that I enjoy. Um, sure, I would like to have more money. Everyone would like to have more money. James Cameron would like to have more money. There is never enough money. There is never enough time. And as Cameron himself has put it, you know, films uh, are not finished. They are abandoned. <laughs> but um, I, I try to abandon my films with as much love uh, and care as I can under the circumstances that I'm that I'm given. I mean, my last film, uh, Drive Hard, was shot in 18 10-hour days, uh, and you know was you know a, a constantly evolving process. Um, but uh, uh, it was uh, you know it it, it it worked out well. I enjoy it. Uh, a lot of people like its sort of sly sense of humour. Um, and so, you know, you, you just, you roll the dice and, you know, do the best you can uh, with what you've got. And I think that's the best attitude to have for a filmmaker. Uh, no, yeah, no whining, no whining. Uh, <laughs> just get on with it and try and be clever. Well, and I, I should note that uh, your latest uh, Drive Hard is available on Netflix Instant for anybody who would like to watch it. It's a, a really fun romp with Thomas Jane and John Cusack. Uh, but you know, one of the, uh, along those same lines, Brian. I, I, you know, what what kind of things are you able to achieve uh, with this lower budget form of filmmaking, of genre filmmaking, that perhaps you know bigger budgets wouldn't be able to do? Is there anything that you're capable of that they're not? Well, I think primarily it's what I'm allowed to do. The lower the budget, the more freedom I generally have creatively within the straitjacket of that budget. Uh, so I am able to, let's say, put a few of my eccentric touches in um, that I consider are compatible with the subject matter. Uh, but, I mean, let's take a film like Turkey Shoot, uh, which was originally going to be 44 days, but the uh, financing ran into uh, you know, a bit of a you know, obstacle uh, a few weeks before we actually started shooting and we were already preparing a much larger movie and and had to make the movie basically for one third less and that third seemed to largely come out of the below the line component uh, you know the nuts and bolts uh, and, and raw materials with which you actually make the film as opposed to salaries for you know, stars, producers, um, etc. Uh, we built a huge prison camp for uh, a day. We could have maybe a couple of hundred extras, uh, but you know, I could only get 75 on my biggest day, 50 for the next day, 25 for the next day, and so that. Uh, um, yeah, so we we you know we had to sort of cut our cloth to uh, what was there. But I I was given creative freedom, and I made uh, you know a you know a sort of yeah, wry political allegory uh, and a blood and thunder uh, splatter movie uh, that homaged certain, you know, yeah, yeah, Lucio Fulci's, you know, extreme violence, uh, and so it, it was a it was an interesting genre cocktail. But I had the, uh, you know, I had the the power and the freedom to do that, but I then had to do it in twenty eight days and not forty four days. Uh, and in Australia, you work 10-hour days, not 12-hour days. Uh, so that's one thing that, you know, uh, that let's say, is, is, 
satisfying to me as as an artist. I mean, I, I you know, I mean, I, I think I'm I'm more of a craftsman probably than an artist, but I do have a point of view. I do, you know, have, have a, a world view, and certainly Turkey Shoot in its in its way, um, you know, was uh, you know a you know uh, it, it reflected some of my political feelings at the time that uh, Ronald Reagan uh, came to power, mm -hmm. so to speak, uh, in the United States. Um, but uh, uh, so you know, low budgets compel you to to be more inventive. How do you suggest a cast of thousands? Uh, I mean, Turkey Shoot being an example, I had 75 people for this huge parade ground, so I arranged them in, in triangles uh, where, you know, you put you know, 70 people uh, in a triangle pointing inwards towards where the camera is, and then three people in a cluster in foreground uh, simulating the the triangle that you can't see that is behind the camera. So when you cut to the reverse angle, then you move all those people from the triangle that you could see uh, to reverse their positions. The front people go to the back and the back people go to the front. And you pluck a couple more people out for some foreground to simulate the triangle that they just saw. Uh, so the, uh, you know, the, uh, there are little tricks of the trade that you can do uh, to you know, overcome the budget shortfall, and that's just one example. And that and that's not just ingenious. That's that's great filmmaking. Well, yes, and I and it's great filmmaking that I have let's say absorbed from watching the masters and and their work um, over the years. I mean, I I've been a film addict, um, you know, from childhood, uh, and uh, <clears throat> so. The people that Quentin Tarantino admires, you know, Howard Hawks, Henry Hathaway, Robert Aldrich, uh, and he has a wide variety of, of people he admires for different reasons, including, you know, Ulmer and, you know, other directors that you've mentioned. Uh, you know, when you, when you look at the very solid, grounded, but photographically pleasing work of Anthony Mann's westerns, um, you know the naked spur. You know that when you you look at that the the quality of that filmmaking with when you know the technology wasn't nearly as advanced as it is today, um, and how you know how they staged scenes and when they decided to go to close up uh, and when they did not, um, and how they used good camera movements that opened up the set. Um, by moving an actor across the set or the location and suddenly, whoa, another whole vista opens up. And so these are the people I learned from. And, and Hitchcock, too, obviously. Uh, I would count Vertigo as the film I saw at 13 where I had that eureka moment. The light bulb went off over my head and uh, I suddenly realize, hmm, you know, when I leave school at 18, I'm going to have to do what they call work for a living, I understand. Hmm, what will I do? And, and suddenly it occurred to me as I came out of, you know, this, 
double bill of this small English theatre, you know, Rory Calhoun in Four Guns to the Border, double billed with the rerun of Vertigo, um, which in those days actually hadn't done too well in its first run. It was not a successful film for Hitchcock initially, um, though it's much loved now and much better appreciated. But I came out of that realizing, hmm, you know, people get paid to make movies. Ah, excellent. That's what I'll do because I really love movies. And so I should make them. So, you know, I, I mean, I know that was a, a somewhat sort of naive uh, belief. Uh, but when you're 13, you're, you, you are a little naive. And, but I, I have then pursued it ever since. I, I started reading books uh, about films, subscribing to magazines like the British Film Institute Monthly Bulletin, Films and Filming, Sight and Sound. Um, and so... I, you know, I, I, you know, that's how it all started. Um, but it's the the masters who, uh, you know, really sort of showed me the basics. So, did you was was your uh, film education was it at that theater? And was this in England or was this in Australia? That was in England. I'm half British, half Australian, half Irish. Wow! Um, you can do that if you're Irish, me lad. <laughs> I've made two leprechaun movies to prove it. God, he's doing the goddamn accent again. Oh, anyway, so pardon me, I get carried away. But uh, uh, yeah, it was in England. My father was an Australian who joined the Royal Air Force uh, and then ended up staying. Uh, was, you know, became a wing commander and uh, uh, you know stayed in England. And I was the result. Um, and uh, he, both he and my mother, who was a, an actress who retired when they married in '39. You know, it's. Uh, uh, when the war came, that was the end of that. Um, they both, you know, encouraged me, and uh, they didn't say, "Oh, don't be silly. Uh, you should go into banking or law." Um, and uh, they were got a bit of banking and a bit of law might actually help in filmmaking. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, but they encouraged me, and I made eight millimeter films, you know, in my teen years, and my one of them got me uh, my first little professional job editing 16mm film for the Central Electricity Generating Board because I was dating the daughter of one of the key executives. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes nepotism really is most useful. And that, you know, that gave me, that enabled me to say when I went to Channel 10 in Sydney, uh, turning 20, oh, have you edited 16mm film? Yes, I have. Um, yeah, I mean, not very well, but uh, you know, uh, but I had, and uh, so that was that was that became my real start. Uh, and editing, of course, is the grammar and syntax of filmmaking, and it's something that everyone who wants to make films needs to study in great detail. Uh, and I started making, I, I started cutting news. If you can cut news, you can just about cut anything. And I graduated to station promos, and they got noticed by a trailer company in America, and uh, that they sent me back to England to um, make trailers for Hammer Horrors, for Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, uh, Lindsay Anderson's If, um, and uh, uh, about 25 uh, British films over a two-year period. Uh, then the Australian said, please come back, and I said, only if you give me programs to make as well as the station promos to run. Uh, and that was how I you know, managed to make that transition across from what is effectively the publicity and promotion side 
um, in which you know I you know had acquired a certain amount of editorial expertise, and I made that transition across to actual production, to actually you know pointing a camera or uh, telling a person to point the camera at something uh, and uh, staging an event. Uh, so that was you know I was lucky to have that you know that smooth transition. Um, it's it's tough for young filmmakers starting out right now. Uh, so I, you know, I, th I think I've been extremely lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. One of the best uh, online film schools that I, at least that's what I call it, is uh, trailersfromhell.com. And this is uh, something that I think Joe Dante started. I, I talked to Joe on the podcast a couple of years ago. But you're actually one of the most prolific so-called gurus on Trailers from Hell, and which it's really kind of perfect given your background in making these trailers. And it, your, your absolute genuine passion and joy for these films that, or for these trailers that you talk about comes through in every one of these videos. I mean, you, you did over 50 commentaries, I think, for movies like How the West Was Won and Where Eagles Dare and so many more. Yeah, no, I, I picked a lot of films that I loved uh, growing up, uh, and from time to time, you know, I, I come across a film uh, that really impresses me, like Snowpiercer, uh, and I just have to write about it. Uh, and occasionally I write for Talkhouse Film, um, and I did a piece uh, recently on Bruce Lee, who I, I nearly met. You know, I, was on, I caught a plane to... To shoot an interview with him, but he died. Uh, had, had, he died probably as I was boarding the plane, um, so I ended up making a tribute to him. But um, you know, I write you know, for Talk House occasionally, and I, I wrote a piece on to um, a husband and wife filmmaking team that I really enjoy, that really admired the Andrew and Virginia Stone. Mm -hmm. And most people probably don't know of them, but they actually pioneered location filmmaking in the 50s when the studios were much more concerned with you know, keeping things inside the, the back lot, inside the sound stage where the, the sound could be perfect and the light, lighting could be perfect. The Stones said, no, let's get out in the real world and shoot our thrillers in real locations. So when they wanted to make a movie about uh, a ocean liner that catches fire and sinks, they uh, rented an ocean liner that was about to be scrapped, set fire to it, and sank it. Well, <laughs> they, they sank it to the point of um, you know, capsize, uh, and then they were able to uh, unflood it and get it towed into Yokohama so it could be turned into steel uh, for, no doubt, another ship. Um, but anyway, that's, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I do have a, a love, a passion, and an obsession, I guess, with, uh, with the, the joy of filmmaking, and I want to communicate that joy to as many people as I can. Next Monday, I'm going to go into uh, Portland State University and just give a free talk to... Uh, the you know so, uh, you know a collection of film students there, uh, and I'm happy to do this um, because I want to communicate my enthusiasm and my love of cinema to to them, and maybe you know uh, suggest some some directions people could take. So you mentioned the uh, Bruce Lee documentary that got scrapped because of uh, well, you you still did a docu uh, a piece about Bruce Lee, right? Yeah, I, 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 did, I, I did a tribute to him called World of Kung Fu, 
and then I cannibalized it uh, into uh, Kung Fu killers who will succeed Bruce Lee on, uh, on the international martial arts scene. Well, which, which, who is the next Chinese star that will succeed him? And uh, I, you know, and, and that brought me into closer contact with Raymond Chow's Golden Harvest Company, which eventually resulted in them, you know, putting up half the money uh, for the man from Hong Kong. Um, but, uh, you know, I, you know, Kung Fu Killers, you know, was a 75-minute, uh, largely sort of a clip, uh, clip documentary with uh, examples of all the upcoming uh, martial arts guys in Hong Kong. I was told Carter Wong would be the next big thing, uh, but that didn't prove to be the case, though he was a very, you know, very skilled and very handsome martial artist and staged a little fight between him and Grant Page on top of Victoria Peak. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, and I, I asked, well, what's who's this guy, Jackie Chan? And he'd just done one film that had not worked particularly well. Uh, and I said, oh, no, no, he's not going to make it. <laughs> just goes to show you. Um, so, you know, uh, so I never got to meet Jackie either. <laughs> uh, you know, um, and uh, so, but, you know, I did have contact with, uh, you know, with the star, other stars of Golden Harvest, like Sammo Hung and Sammo. Uh, you know, plays in My Man from Hong Kong and was the fight choreographer, um, which indicated the fact that they gave him that position on their first, inter their first co-production with Australia um, at the age of 22, um, when he did not speak any English, uh, was, I think, an, in, indicative of how talented they knew he was. And I very quickly found out uh, how talented he was. And we, we were able to communicate um, because our interpreter had gone back to Hong Kong. Uh, so we were able to basically inter communicate with sign language and gestures. And, you know, I'd, I'd throw a punch at Roger Ward um, and uh, suggest a couple of things. And then he, he would suggest another couple of things, quite often kicking Roger Ward in the balls, uh, <laughs> which you know, was, was a bit of a fetish of mine at that time uh, because uh, you weren't allowed to do that uh, in movies prior to uh, this period and prior to the introduction of the, the R rating in Australia. So uh, the film is full of groin kicks and, and, and testicle squeezing uh, and uh, the so-called squirrel grip, as it is known, uh, and uh, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I, I had fun with that. I overloaded the film with uh, with groin kicks, um, and I even got to get the uh, have Jimmy Wong Yu kick the associate producer Andre Morgan in the balls uh, uh, in one of in the climactic fight scene um, after he's he's you know thrown George Lazenby in the safe with a grenade in his mouth um, and. Uh, um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, as, as you, as you say, I have fun. Well, I should, I should point out to, uh, our listeners who've never seen the man from Hong Kong. It's an absolutely wild ride. It's about this Chinese inspector, or, uh, I think you've referred to him as a Chinese dirty Harry. Yeah. who comes into Sydney and completely wrecks havoc in chasing after 
the Mr. Big character played by played by George Lazenby, who you you cast against type. George Lazenby, of course, have, being famous for playing Bond and on on Her Majesty's Secret Service. But it it's it's a, as I said, it's an absolute wild ride with these enormously crazy stunts uh, choreographed by Grant Page. Correct? Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Grant uh, was <clears throat> an amazing, you know, natural stunt man. I mean, he, yeah, you know, I think he he was a, probably a stunt baby, uh, and he he just. <laughs> I, I met him uh, when I needed someone to do rope slides off the gap in Sydney, just on the edge of the harbour. It was about a hundred foot uh, drop down to the rocks, and and I needed. You know, we were doing a, a, a commando raid sequence for um, my very first independent production, the Stuntmen, a dramatized documentary about stuntmen, because stuntmen had become a focus of my interest in the course of, you know, my study of film, you know, and, you know, these are the guys that make the hero look good uh, and, and, and protect the hero from damage or protect the actor from damage. So, you know, he could do rope slides because he'd been in the commandos. And uh, it became apparent to me that he wasn't just, you know, a professional who could take a fall or crash a car or be a punching bag in a fight scene and uh, you know, do it, you know, very professionally. But he, he, he was an innovator. And he looked for ways to push the boundaries of what was possible with, within the margins of safety. Mm-hmm. Um, he came up with the tandem rope slide, which was a rope slide, a, a diagonal as opposed to a vertical rope slide, where, you're, where he was carrying a wounded man across his shoulders while sliding down the rope, and a catapult stunt where he was literally, apparently, fired by like a, bow, a taut bowstring across uh, out from the cliff out to sea, but had, was hanging on to the rope nonetheless. Actually, he concealed a pair of carabiners in his palms that made sure he couldn't fly off. But those are the tricks of the trade. I mean, some men are not fools. They're there to actually, they're there to survive as well as achieve impact. Um, but he, he also, you know, pioneered fire stunts without the customary protective suit and without becoming extra crispy. Uh, so uh, I, there was a charismatic confident Errol Flynn quality about Grant Page. And I thought, well, he could be an actor who did his own stunts and maybe add further credibility to the scene. So I became his manager for five years and we made a bunch of successful films together. And, uh, you know, I, you know, he went on to, I think, you know, a, a very successful career, both in Australia and internationally. And he masterminded the stunts for the first Mad Max movie when uh, his leg was in plaster, uh, his leg was broken um, by uh, an erratic truck turning across his path as he was riding his, his bike out to location on day one. Wow. <laughs> and it, it, the, 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 the truck was driving right into the 6 a.m. dawn sun and did not see this little motorbike coming to the other direction. and. Uh, just made a sharp right turn uh, to at a junction without signaling, and Grant had to lay the bike down, slide under the the truck, and his wheels are bounced off the the tires. Anyway, he got a broken uh, broken nose and a and a broken leg. 
So they got his leg into plaster and he was back on the job within a few days. <laughs> That's grand for you. <clears throat> well, you know, listening to, uh, to your story about Grant and knowing a little bit about his background, you know, as a, as a star or as an actor who did his own stunts, he always reminded me a little bit of Richard Talmadge. Do you know who Richard Talmadge was? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, he started his career in the silent days, and he was billed as this action hero who did all of his own stunts. The, the things that you saw on the screen, mm. Talmadge, the actor, was actually doing. And this, of course, was somewhat concurrent when he was also doubling for Douglas Fairbanks Sr. And then once he left active stunting, he went into second unit directing, much like, much like it sounds like Grant, Grant did. Yes, he did. I think Talmadge did a lot of second unit on how the West was won. That's right. He directed the uh, train, the train chase sequence. Yeah. Well, you know, talking a little bit more about stunts. I mean, just listening to you, it it occurs to me that I am, I'm, you know, a person after your own heart. I mean, stunt work to me, uh, I've often wanted it to be considered an art form, just as as much as cinematography or editing. Uh, or special effects have been considered. And I, I, I think it is a, it's an integral part of the filmmaking experience. M- many, of the, many of the key moments in cinema that you know, stand out in your mind are because of the stunt work. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, that, and, and, that, and I, I figured that you know, stunt work is part of the sort of, uh, well, it, it's part of the universal currency of the movie uh, market. Uh, people like to see acts of daring do, and how they do that, and uh, how how are they not killed, and so on and so forth. It, 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 they they really want to. They they seeing is believing, and to a certain extent, uh, CGI has has taken that edge of reality away from action scenes. Uh, so uh, I I'm all for CG shots uh, preventing an actor or a stuntman getting killed. I'm all, all in favor of replacing the one absolutely lethal shot. Uh, but if you can do as much of it as possible practically, um, that that's, you know, ultimately the audience, they won't quite know why, but they'll, they'll you know, they will enjoy it more. They'll be more sucked into the story and the, the drama of the moment. Uh, if they really believe that there's no fakery. Now, there is technique uh, instead of of fakery insofar as you break down the action into a series of different angles. Some of the action might play in a longer shot in in, just in in, in one whole section um, and then you know, a number of shorter shots uh, from different angles might pay off the particular event. Uh, but um, <clears throat> if you've got an actor or a stuntman who can do uh, a lot of things in one, you know, from one perspective in one movement, that, that always helps. Uh, but uh, uh, it's, it, it's a question of examining the event and thinking now, for this part of it, what is the most impactful angle from uh, to present this to the audience from? Uh, and uh, 
do we need a little piece of glue, a little piece of connective tissue that can link these two great shots uh, together, which will have to be done separately for safety reasons? Um, and how do we make that piece of connective tissue invisible? I mean, do we stage it as a tracking shot where there are bits of foreground going past the camera and you can use that, that piece of foreground as a way of flowing into an almost identical tracking shot where you've now set up a whole new scenario for the actor or the stuntman and the audience, <clears throat> you, you've, you know, your sleight of hand uh, has sort of gone, has slipped past the audience invisibly uh, and uh, um, you know, you, you've achieved the effect that you want. I mean, it's a rather long-winded explanation, but uh, you know, I've, I've made a study of uh, how to shoot action and uh, I, you know, give me a huge schedule uh, and you will get some extraordinary action, but I'm generally having to do it um, you know, in, you know, on, on a low budget and on a tight schedule. So I do the best I can with, with, with what I've got. But uh, I'm not, you know, I'm quite proud of the action in BMX Bandits. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm quite proud of the action in uh, um, the Siege of Firebase Gloria. Uh, so uh, I'm quite proud of the uh, uh, commando helicopter attack on the Roman castle in uh, Omega Code 2. Uh, so you know, I you know, you do the best you can with with what you've got, uh, and you just try and keep current. Uh, if I could, you know, single out a you know a, a, you know particular movies recently that I that have really impressed the action has really impressed me, and that was the Raid and the Raid Two Redemption. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that car chase. Ooh, I would love to have the ability to damage that many cars. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, Ray, yeah, the Raid films are just absolutely stunning. And you, you'd mentioned Mad Max, so I have to also note the power and the impact that Fury Road, the uh, last Mad Max film, really had on me as a viewer. Yes, yeah, that was extraordinary. Um, and uh, though Grant uh, didn't do, uh, he, he, he was a safety coordinator on some of the Sydney shooting, but the, the um, shooting in the Namibian desert were, was stunt gaffed and uh, second unit directed by Guy Norris, um, another stunt man who's worked regularly for me in the past. He did the huge truck jump at the end of Dead End Drive-In, smashing through the neon sign over the box office. Amazing. Yeah. A great, and, such a wonderful gag. Yeah, 163 feet for a, a, a truck of that tonnage is, is not a bad, uh, not a, not bad flying through the air, uh, and uh, uh, so you know, guy really, you know, guy has has a gift, and as as Grant has, and uh, uh, as all the great stuntmen have, uh, and uh, he has pursued, you know, you know, uh, practicing his craft and. I think he really uh, he really hit his peak with uh, uh, the work on on, on, on Fury Road, uh, which came off with uh, you know barely a scratch. Nobody nobody you know, got hurt. Nobody broke bones or whatever. So that was you know that 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 was you know when everything works perfectly, and yet it looks utterly lethal. You mm -hmm. think God, uh, how? I mean, obviously there was there was. Uh, safety wires, cables that were then subsequently removed uh, 
but uh, it was an, an amazing piece of staging. Uh, it, it benefited from the uh, collective intelligence of, you know, the uh, George Miller being, you know, something of an action mastermind. Uh, John Seal, who's shot four pictures for me, including BMX Bandits. Uh, <coughs> and an Academy uh, Award winner, too. And, yes, an Academy Award winner. Um, uh, and uh, Guy Norris. Uh, you know, they all put their heads together. Sometimes there were ten cameras uh, playing on the action. And George was in a tent watching all ten screens. Uh, and then they would do it and do it over and do it over until he got the coverage that he needed. Um, and... Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, it is a masterwork. It, it, it became, I mean, I guess every summer there's the outstanding action picture and there's without a doubt, I think you have to say that uh, Mad Max Fury Road uh, was, uh, you know, the outstanding summer action movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, it had a look and a feel unlike anything else that uh, people had seen for quite some time. Brian, looking at your films, the, the action, the extraordinary action sequences in films like Man from Hong Kong and Dead in Drive-In, what is your feelings behind the practice of undercranking for a stunt scene? Well, it, it, it's okay um, if it doesn't show. Now, Mad Max Fury Road has, uh, you know, a, 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 a you know, is a perfect example of of that because on those uh, desert, you know, tracks um, in the Namibian desert, uh, these particular vehicles that had to be sort of custom made, uh, they couldn't travel much faster than thirty five miles an hour. That's still pretty fast if you fall off and run under the, uh, the wheels. Uh, but uh, so in order to heighten the impact, they had to be speeded up um, in post-production. But when you shoot at the right uh, frame rate, you're able to do that invisibly. When you look at early films like The Charge of the Light Brigade, uh, 1938, uh, Ganga Din, 36, you know, the, the practice in those days was to speed up you know, the horses uh, and shoot uh, 20 frames. I think 20 frames, and I'm talking, yeah, 35 mil. You know, I'm 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 I'm, I'm a, a relic from the past. Though <laughs> <laughs> so I embrace the digital uh, era, and I, I because I, I can actually get more shots in the day um, uh, using digital cameras. And you know, when my next film, which I'm not sure precisely which one and when it will go, but it won't be this year. Um, you know, when my next film goes, you know, I'm going to be bringing bunches of GoPros and uh, as many cameras as I possibly can to the action sequences. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and I will be doing a certain amount of uh, both slow motion and not very much speeded up motion, but, uh, uh, but anyway, they, they speeded up the cars invisibly in, in, uh, in, in Fury Road. But in the old days when you were using sprocketed film and uh, you're, you could, you know, you know, you could speed it up to, up to 20 frames, but I, it always showed to me the horses were, you know, their legs were going sort of in, in a jerky way. Yeah. I did speed a couple of the fight scenes in uh, Man from Hong Kong up to the point of 22 frames against the standard 24. Just made some of the, you know, running up, ready to be hit 
wider shots uh, faster uh, to play on the screen. But you know, I think if you try and you know, try and keep it as real as possible, but you're entitled to go into style such as slow motion uh, um, when it is appropriate. What What are some of the key films in movie history that that uh, exemplify what great stunt work is all about? I mean, what are some of those great gags that really stick in your mind? Well, uh, I would say Yakima Knut's uh, stagecoach gag in Stagecoach, 1939, uh, John Ford Weston, uh, John Wayne, you know, Yakima uh, plays an Indian, as was, you know, something, yeah, stuntmen did a lot of that. Uh, and uh, he, you know, jumps from his horse onto the, uh, um, you know, on, on, onto the, the horses pulling the stagecoach, gets shot off, falls between the, um, you know, the, the wheels or, uh, and, and dies. Mm -hmm. uh, then he, in a subsequent uh, Western, uh, he uh, added to that by climbing up the back of the, the wagon that had apparently gone over him and fighting with the, <clears throat> the driver. And of course, in Indiana Jones, uh, Vic Armstrong, uh, you know, once again, duplicated that that gag all the way you know with the, in the in the famous truck scene mm -hmm. i've done that scene once in a western series called five mile creek um uh, and it was guy norris uh, who did the gag he always had wanted to do it we discussed it and he you know i said is there a stunt you ever want to do he said oh, i want to do the yakima canute stunt i want to do uh let me see this was this was 84 and we did it, and we we had a situation where a, uh, a character had put on uh, special armor that Ned Kelly wore when he raided banks in mm -hmm. the 1880s in Australia. Ned Kelly is uh, probably Australia's most famous outlaw, mm -hmm. <clears throat> kind of the the Jesse James, um, and uh, uh, he. Uh, so he wore a, he fashioned a breastplate, which he hung around his, his, his neck and a, and a tin can kind of helmet. Uh, and uh, so we had the character, uh, you know, in, in that and uh, we then doubled him with Guy and he fell in, he fell into the traces between the horses, let himself down uh, and uh, did the whole stunt and climbed back up on top of the uh, um, the, the stagecoach. Wow. So it was fun to actually you know, homage that, uh, and I guess the the Disney Channel audience um, you know, saw it, and maybe some of them actually realized where the homage came from. Actually, uh, not to correct you, but it was actually Terry Leonard who did the under under the truck gag and Raiders. Uh, oh, oh, I beg your pardon. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Vic Armstrong in the in the in the crusade. Yes, it was yes. the last crusade that Vic did one of my favorite stunts, and that was jumping off that horse onto the moving tank. Yes, an amazing gag. Yeah, but one you know one of the things that that I've always appreciated about great action filmmaking, and I think you have mastered this expertly, and that is creating a sense of geography and laying out the drama in a way that the viewer can make spatial sense of where the other characters are. 
you know, I, I was I was reading a review of of your remake of your remake of uh, the 1943 film Sahara that you ref- that you referenced earlier. Uh, the New York Times said that this was a stunning exception to the rule that most uh, TV remakes of Hollywood classics are usually disastrous. <laughs> but yours was was a stunning exception to this, and I I think a large part of it is because you just know how to make action sensible to the viewer. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a great believer in geography. Uh, the viewer <clears throat> wants to know, you know, where the characters are and what their spatial relationship with each other is, uh, and how the action flows within that that piece of geography. I, you know, I want to see their feet. You know, <laughs> not not all the time, but I want to see their feet when it's important to know where their feet are. Uh, or what part of the room, or the the desert, or the mountain, or whatever that that this activity is taking place in, uh, and that there's a time to drop back to something wider, uh, and there's a time to stay in close. What I don't particularly care for is this sort of machine gun editing of you know long lens you know shots and the. Uh, compatible or sometimes not compatible reverse angles uh, in fight scenes in, uh, in in current movies. I mean, frankly, I didn't care for the fights in the Batman picture. You know, I'd, I mean, there were aspects of them that were good, but I, I felt the fight with Bale in the last one was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't find it, it didn't do much for me. Now, of course, it was on a, on a catwalk. It was. You know, therefore, claustrophobic for the the participants. Um, but you know, I would have liked to. Yeah, you know, I mean, maybe I would have not staged it on a catwalk. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> it, it, who am I to criticize a great yeah you know, filmmaker? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, but he is. Yeah, he is great, and I loved his films. And I yeah, you know, uh, I loved Inception. Uh, uh, but. Uh, it, it's yeah. You know, I, I, this this machine gun editing uh, and this blizzard of of close angles where you don't really get a sense of relativity uh, is uh, yeah. I, I I don't think it is uh, is doing uh, the best possible job. Let's say. And you, and you look at the way the fights are staged in the raid. And obviously these guys can really fight. And it would appear they can really throw themselves against uh, metal fridges and. You know, land on concrete uh, <laughs> and survive um, because they, they, they didn't. I don't think they built rubber floors for those those sets. Certainly not on the raid one. Um, but you know, I, there was a, a, a an astute uh, you know, selection of close shots as opposed to wider shots where you saw the whole activity. Well, we've uh, TCM has aired one of your films. We've aired Stunt Rock. Uh, what is the uh, who owns the rights to your films? To some of the titles that we've mentioned, I control the rights in America for Stunt Rock, uh, and uh, it's you know the you know, it, it, the company that made it originally went bankrupt, and it was a co-production with my company. So I look after it, uh, and. Uh, um, <clears throat> I'm glad that uh, TCM viewers saw it, and of course, it play. I, I book it occasionally on the midnight circuit as well. It's it's a great crowd experience. Uh, what about the man from Hong Kong? 
Um, well, I, I mean that you know there is a company that is trying to to get the uh, U.S. rights to it from uh, the inheritors of the Chinese uh, of, of Golden Harvest and my, myself, uh, the uh, the other the fifty percent co-production partner. And when that is concluded, I will let you know, um, and hopefully there will be a Blu-ray. Well, that, that would be fair. I mean, if anything deserves a Blu-ray treatment, it's the man from Hong Kong, as yeah. well as Dead End Drive-In and Turkey Shoot and so many of, the, so many, uh, many of these other films that we've discussed today. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping to see them on TCM in the future. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, I don't own the rights to uh, Dead End Drive-In. I wish I did because I could probably handle them better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, uh, I think it, it's, you know, disappeared into you know, wherever the New World Library went last. Um, I mean, for a while, uh, Anchor Bay had uh, Turkey Shoot and uh, Dead End Drive-In. Um, but now I think somebody else has it. Um, Turkey Shoot has just come out through Severin. <coughs> and, uh, uh, but I would really like to see a new version of, uh, you know, a Blu-ray of Dead End Drive-In come out. and. And the, uh, the the original negative uh, Interpos uh, is is available in Australia. One could be made, you know, easily. Uh, and it's a film that seems to have lasted the, the, the test of time. And again, an example of where I was allowed creative freedom and made it as political as I wanted to. And another film that we never got around to talking about, and this is another one of Tarantino's favorites of yours, and that's The Siege of Firebase Gloria, I think is coming out on Blu-ray soon. Uh, yes, I believe it is. Uh, in uh, it, might, it might be coming out in December. Ideal Christmas present for if you have a veteran in the family. It's a, it's a very popular film with veterans uh, of Vietnam, for instance. They find it uh, truthful. Um, and uh, it, it speaks to them. It, uh, it, 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 you know, I mean, I know one particular veteran who couldn't watch more than 10 minutes of it because it just evoked too many you know, painful memories for him. Uh, but you know, many veterans you know, do appreciate it, and, and they do appreciate the credit that the film gives to the Viet Cong, which uh, was you know, not the custom of films at that time. And in fact, the, the, the level of, uh, of credit uh, that I gave um, it was somewhat reduced by the uh, distributor. Uh, the film that I conceived started with uh, a boatload of, of Vietnamese you know, refugees, boat people, landing in the Philippines 15 years after the Tet Offensive of, 1990, uh, 1988. And a, we, we learn from narration uh, by the Lee Ermey character, that uh, he he couldn't fit in back in America after the war, so he is now uh, working for the UN in a refugee processing center, and he looks at this crowd of refugees and he sees a face, uh, and you I know that face, mm. and he he starts to walk towards um, that particular person in the crowd. How is he? Yeah, so. The film then flash, flashes back to the film that you now see, 
And at the very end of the, of the, the, the battle, we revert to what was you know, present day at that time. Uh, and he's walking through the crowd to the, you know, the man uh, who has a scar on his face because the two of them locked in hand-to-hand -hand combat and he got, you know, uh, you know, the Vietnamese commander got cut by a, a knife across the cheek and still bears the scar. Uh, and how is this, you know, veteran Marine, how does he feel right. about a former enemy when in that battle he lost, you know, his closest friend and, and many others. But when he arrives in front of the man, he extends his hand and in Vietnamese says, welcome. Now, that was the message I wanted to get across, war and reconciliation. Mm. Uh, Wars are fought by brave young people on both sides of the politicians that make the wars and, the, and, and, and you know, should do a whole lot better in preventing them from happening. But it's the poor soldiers who have to fight them and uh, you know, be killed or maimed or psychologically traumatized by the experience. So that was the message that I wanted to get across. But the distributor felt that there was uh, too much emphasis on the Vietnamese. It was mm. not patriotic. So the the bookends, you know, you know, to the whole story were cut. Oh, wow. So that's the only time I have ever been politically censored. But, you know, uh, you know we, we live in an ever more politically correct uh, you know, and an enforceably politically correct world. So, Brian, I have one final question for you. <laughs> there's a, uh, you know, there's a story that when you were on the set of The Man from Hong Kong, you were trying to convince uh, George Lazenby to do this final scene uh, while on fire. And you demonstrated for him the, the, relatively, uh, the relative safety uh, of being set on fire. So my question to you is, what does it feel like to be on fire? Um, well, you feel a little warm, um, that's for sure. Um, and... Uh, uh, but the main thing is to believe is that you're not actually burning. Uh, I mean, we pioneered this uh, fire retardant gel, water gel it was called in Australia, which was initially designed to put out uh, fires and or people on fire by throwing a water gel blanket over them. Uh, so, you know, we, you know, I first set my naked arm on fire in my very first film, The Stuntman, thinking I could hold it for 10 seconds, but three seconds later I had to stick it in the bucket, but it did show that I didn't get burned. Uh, I did a seven fire stunts over uh, as publicity stunts um, it, it, for The Man from Hong Kong, but then six weeks after I got married, I thought, well, maybe I should stop doing that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I was, once was offered to the Johnny Carson show as the hottest director in town. <laughs> and uh, you know, he would suggest that then you know, he would say, I want you to meet the hottest director in town. The curtains would draw open and there I would be on fire. But the, the, the negotiation didn't get very far when the legal department quickly squelched that one. But <laughs> I did do fire stunts on a number of uh, regional American talk shows, um, TV shows and in the afternoons or the mornings. Um, but... I had done, I did this one to show George that he wouldn't get burned uh, and uh, you know, I basically stripped off, put the gel on, put two layers of clothing on, then they set fire to me, he saw it, thought, oh, oh, oh it'll work. 
Now, you know, I should never have done that because, of course, it did go wrong and he got a burn on uh, a section of his, uh, just under his, you know, beneath his palm, just on his wrist, about a three-inch uh, little strip got burned. But he, you know, showed no, uh, shows no sign of scarring uh, since. Uh, but, yeah, he was certainly pretty pissed off <laughs> when it happened. But it, <clears throat> unfortunately, he, yeah, he couldn't get the burning jacket off. Uh, and uh, so we, we, we tackled him, brought him to the ground, put the blanket over him, and he was, he, he was okay. But, you know, uh, we had his, his burn treated, and four days later, he was able to come back to work. Uh, but, you know, that's, a, that's an example of just pushing the envelope a little too far. And, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I was, you know, carried away by the, you know, by my passion for the film and by my passion for achieving impact. And I just stepped outside the margin of safety for another person. Uh, and it was a good lesson to me. And it would appear that I've not been, a, I've not killed or injured anybody uh, since. Uh, so that, that, that is, <laughs> that, that, that's welcome. But, you know, I, I, you know, I have to acknowledge that, that you know, as a filmmaker, you, you, you've got to remember you're, you are making entertainment and no one should die or be maimed uh, in that cause. Well, let's hope you don't lose that enthusiasm for making motion pictures. Well, I never will. I never will. And uh, I'd like to get out and shoot something right now. But every now and again, I put my cell phone up and just take a shot when I see a nice one. <laughs> there is on the edge of my property a cabin in the woods, a uh, deserted cabin. Uh, and uh, yesterday I, I was walking around and I saw this great shot that I could do just tracking past the leaves and then revealing this rather ominous looking building. So, I mean, even if you haven't got a film to be paid to make, you can still uh, get pleasure out of practicing your craft with your cell phone camera. Fantastic. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining me. This has been just absolute splendid conversation. And I, I, I do hope we stay in touch. Yeah, and thank you for your astute questions. Uh, it's, uh, you, you've done your homework. Yeah, I was wrong about Terry Leonard. I met Terry, uh, he, he was a good guy. Uh, and uh, we, we, yeah, we, we had a few, we, we, we shared some more stories together. I bet you did. <laughs> anyway. Well, Brian, thank you so much and uh, I'll be in touch. Okay, All right. thanks, Scott. Thank you, Bye. sir, bye-bye. Well, many thanks to Brian for joining me today. That was just an absolutely, absolutely amazing conversation. Uh, you can follow Brian on Twitter at General Murray. That's G-E-N-E-R-A-L-M-U-R-R-A-Y. And, of course, you can listen to many of Brian's splendid commentaries of classic films, uh, classic film trailers, I should add, at trailersfromhell.com. Thank you so much for joining us for the TCM Podcast.